Charlie for our song and for our prayer today. We're certainly happy to have everyone with us. And I encourage you to turn to the book of Acts, and I'll be looking at the latter portion of the fifth chapter, I think. So let's, there we are, the fifth chapter. We have studied already about um, Ananias and Sapphira, and we worked our way on down through the discussion of the imprisonment and the release of the apostles. And it's been a Sunday or so since I've been with you, and so I do appreciate everyone who filled in for me while I was away, and I'm always very grateful for that. I uh, am going to be looking at the last portion of the fifth chapter, and then we'll go into the sixth chapter. And the, um, there are a few loose ends that we want to cover in the last portion of the fifth chapter. You'll remember, just to get to context, how that the apostles have been arrested by the Jewish Sanhedrin. We talked about that. We talked about the Sanhedrin. We talked about Pharisees. We talked about Sadducees, and we looked looked at high priests and identified them and what the apostles were doing and how that God had released them and now they've arrested them. They were back preaching at the temple and there they were arrested and brought back before the Sanhedrin and um, they were ready to uh, uh, kill the apostles. So it's a pretty decisive moment in the history of the church right here. If the Jews had actually stoned the apostles to death, it would have been the end of the church. But of course, God intervened providentially, and we're going to find out how he did that in just a moment. But I think an important verse to consider here would be verse 28, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with all your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they were very... Uh, aggressive in teaching the Word of God. They'd filled Jerusalem with the teaching of the Word of God, filled Jerusalem with the preaching of the gospel. And, and so Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And we knocked that around a little bit. There a lot more needs to be said about that principle uh, there, but it's certainly emphasizing for us the importance of being responsible to the civil authority. But at the same time, there's a higher responsibility that we have to God. And if it should be the case whereby that the civil authority would conflict with the law of God, then naturally we would have to follow and be amenable to the law of God. We'd be subject to that and follow that. Romans chapter 13, other passages like that help us understand that particular matter. And there's probably a lot more that needs to be said about that. But I want to talk about this point that he makes in verse 31, and then I'll get into Gamaliel in just a minute. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Verse 32. And so you might want to mark verse 32. It's an important passage of scripture that helps us understand, I believe, the gift of the Spirit, uh, which you read about in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And uh, it comes to us in Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Now, we come across the wise counsel of Gamaliel. And um, basically, Gamaliel was a very important, very popular rabbi at the time. And his grandfather, Rabbi Hillel, was a very famous rabbi at the time. So the name of Gamaliel meant a lot to the people at the synagogue and in the Sanhedrin. So Gamaliel stands up. And basically, he gives the advice that, you know, we had this guy 
come up, and he said that he was a great one, and then his movement, you know, just sort of uh, dried up, and then another guy came up, and he thought he was a great guy, and people started following him, and his movement dried up, and basically his point here is, you know, if this is from God, then it'll succeed. If it's not from God, it'll dry up too. So let's read a little bit about this and then make comment. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. I think 33 is an important point. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Pretty smart there, isn't he? He has them uh, sequestered. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about uh, 400 men gained, <coughs> joined up with him. But he was killed, and all that followed him were dispersed and uh, came to nothing. That is our... <coughs> Verse 36, and then verse 37, after that man Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. Now, I think this is God working through Gamaliel. Gamaliel is not a Christian. Gamaliel is a Pharisee. And Gamaliel thinks like a Pharisee. He doesn't think like a Christian. He says here, so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God, verse 29. Well, that's the advice, and they took the advice, but I'm questioning in my mind if that was good advice or not. Uh, the first thing I need to do is establish the fact that the Scripture is inspired here, that Luke is an inspired writer, and what Luke says came from God. But Gamaliel's not an inspired writer, and he's not an inspired speaker. And what has happened here is that Luke has accurately recorded what happened on that very eventful day in the Sanhedrin and recorded faithfully what Gamaliel had said and his reasoning about the matter. So I cannot attribute inspiration to Gamaliel. I can attribute inspiration and do to Luke, who's recording these matters accurately, but not to Gamaliel. And I think Gamaliel's advice is up to a just criticism. Uh, in effect, what Gamaliel has said is, let's put this off for a while. Let's don't decide. Put it off. This could be of men. If it is of men, it won't amount to anything. If it is of God, you can't defeat it. You'll find yourself fighting against God. So let's put it off for a while. Sounds like a um, pretty typical politician to me. Let's put it off. Let's don't make a decision. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that God was working through Gamaliel, and I believe that's right. But Gamaliel thinks as a Pharisee. He doesn't think as a Christian. And so he wants to put the matter off. He doesn't want to um, be involved in it. Now, there is tradition about Gamaliel. Uh, there is the tradition that Gamaliel became a Christian and that sort of thing, and I don't know anything about that. 
That's just tradition. The Bible doesn't say anything about it. Maybe did, maybe didn't. We may never know about that. But the point of the matter is, this is not really good advice. I never saw Jesus or the apostles put a decision like this off. When you see Jesus and the apostles addressing error, they deal with it right then. They refute it. Doesn't mean that the audience accepts the outcome of it. A lot of times the audience would walk away and not have anything more to do with them. But in and of itself, Jesus never put these things off. And he never said, well, let's wait a while and see what comes of this. If it is of God, it'll work out. If it's not of God, it won't work out. Nor do I see the apostles doing the same thing of putting these particular matters off. I see them dealing with issues and dealing with error. They did it in love. They did it in kindness. They did it in love for God and love for truth and love for the opposition. And they weren't contentious, but they would earnestly contend for the faith, Jude verse 3. So I see Gamaliel's advice is not that wise of advice, though God used that to protect these apostles. For they were ready to kill the apostles. God knew how Gamaliel would reason, and in so doing, he used that for the tech protection of the apostles and the continuance of the gospel. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that's being blocked. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. But, you know, uh, it doesn't win any uh, style points, you know, with uh, the people around, you know, so we kind of said, you know, we can either massage that a little bit and, and not be so harsh, you know, when we talk to people, you know. But uh, that didn't really seem to be the case back there, you know, because they were the first apostles to really get physically beaten up the way that they were talking to people. Yeah. Well, you're right. You're right there. Can you on that? Well, um, I think you're right in a lot of ways. It is blunt sometimes that people are <clears throat> with us, and we have been blunt, and we don't need to be. We need to be kind and courteous. The best way to handle situations by far is to direct them back to the Scripture. When somebody says, well, you think you're the only one that's going to be saved, direct them back to the Scripture. Don't give your response to it. Let Jesus respond to that. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 7 and 21. And so you bring them back to the Word of God, and now it's Jesus saying it, not you. Now, it's easy to argue with you, but it's not so easy to argue with Jesus. And so we're going to bring this person back around in their thinking. They're not there yet. They don't understand. We understand that. So we have to coach them to bring them back to the right way, the right place. And the right place is always the Scripture. So you always bring them back to that. Never get into a haggle with anybody. A haggle never helps anybody. Don't get into an argument. word argument can have a good side, but it can also have a bad side. You don't want to get into a haggle or a... Uh, an argument with somebody about the Scripture. You don't want to do that, but you want to help coach and lead and direct. 
And so that would be when, and of course, we've all heard that at one time or another. It's simply because they don't understand the Word of God like they should. But your question, how do you handle that? And I think the best way to handle that is to go back to the Scripture and let the Scripture answer that and let them face that. And now what I do is I say, write that verse down. Write down Matthew 7, 21. And when you have some time, you go back and read that on your own. Go back and read that. Read the context. And so I have them write all these Scriptures down and... Uh, that way they can read them for themselves. And I guarantee you they don't know that that exists. They've never read it because they haven't studied the Bible. They're coming to it for the first time. Now, another point that I might add in that, and you raise a good question and a good comment, and that is you have been over this and over this and over this, but they may be hearing it for the very first time. So don't be too expectant of them to grasp it the first time you tell it. You have been through this. You probably spent hundreds of hours thinking about this and studying the Scripture about this, but they haven't. They're hearing it for the very first time. It's going to take time for that seed to grow and germinate and develop and give it time to germinate and develop. And so be patient with the people that we study with, but always focusing them back to the Scripture. That's where the power is. The power's in the Word. And you'll always focus them back to that particular point. So that would be some suggestions along that line for me. But you're right. We've got a blunt group of people here in the Pharisees and the Sadducees ready to kill them, and uh, Gamaliel's offering what he thinks is good advice. I don't think it's so good, but I see God's hand in it in that he is using him to preserve and spare the apostles, for if they stoned the apostles and killed them, it's done. The church is over. Marvin, you had a point. Right, right, right. Right. And they can't argue with this political logic. Yeah. 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 They know that. And I think it's just even true of today. Politics is what you see. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that good leadership waits and sees, though. I good leadership makes a decision. And I think you're right. I, I think it's good politics probably to say, let's wait and see. But good leadership makes a decision. We have to do this. We've thought about it. The evidence is here. We've reasoned about, all right, here's the decision that we have to make. Good leadership makes decisions. Now, I don't think this is good leadership here. And I'll tell you another point that comes to my mind. I'll mention it before I forget it, and you have some hands, and I'm happy to call on you. And that is... I don't think he's right on this point that if it's from God, it'll succeed, and if it's not from God, it won't succeed. I don't think he's right on that. I think error will succeed if we do not refute it. Error will be popular if we do not reason against it. I don't mean argue or fight with it, that kind of thing, but I mean to reason apologetically against the error and to show this is not accurate. This is not right. Error can succeed if we don't. And who was that English uh, statesman, Burke? You know, all it takes for error to succeed or something is for good men not to say something about it or whatever that was. That's not the Bible now. But anyway, 
Um, the, the thing that I'm talking about is that I don't know that this is such a good advice as to say, well, it will, if it's just for men, it won't, it, it won't continue. That's not necessarily true. Um, and if we don't speak out for Christ, as these apostles were, man, they're in the temple. And they were told, don't go to the temple. But they're in the temple, they're talking, and people are hearing. And people are listening, and people are believing because they're confronting the truth, and they're confronting the error. And uh, in doing so, this idea that, you know, if it's not true, it won't succeed is not necessarily true. Not necessarily. Sometimes it won't. He gave two examples where it didn't succeed. But it's not necessarily true. It doesn't have to be that way. It could be where error continues and continues unchallenged and takes over and sweeps over, which is what Satan wants to do. So I got some problems with the way uh, Gamaliel reasons, but at the same time, I can see how God's using Gamaliel providentially to preserve the life of the apostles and the future of the church, which is what he did. And they took his advice, and it worked out because God knew it would, knew it would by doing that. Yes, sir, doctor. Right. Yeah, I think you're right there. I, I, uh, Perry's got a very good point here, and that is if you follow his logic and follow his reasoning, the reasoning points to killing them, and it'll be done with. Um, so I can't see that Gamaliel's advice is very wise advice at all. Um, yes, ma'am. I think by them uh, taking them outside and beating Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good example to show yeah. that, hey, no matter what you do to me, right. I'm still going to preach the Word of God. Isn't that so true? And that they serve as a great example of faithfulness and commitment, dedication to God's Word. They're totally, totally committed to the gospel, totally committed to the Word of God. No matter what you do to us, we're going to continue to do it. Now, let me just say this. To be flogged and to be beaten was no easy thing either. Now, they threatened to stone them. That would be a terrible way to die. But for someone to be flogged, basically 39 stripes, uh, save one, was the idea. And the idea that they had was if we give him 41 by mistake, then the guy doing the flogging is going to get it. So to make sure we don't miscount, we're going to give him just 39. And a lot of times people died under the beating. And um, we can go into the background and look at the different kinds of things they use for the punishment and the beating. But it was a terrible punishment. And your point is right. They were very faithful in that regard. Yes, sir. Yeah. I don't know if he's implying that or not. I think he's just, in, I think more so he's saying, let's put this decision off. Let's don't deal with this now. If it comes to pass, it's God's will. If it doesn't come to pass, it wasn't God's will. It'll die out anyway. Let's just let it go right now. And so I don't know. Now, his view, they accepted the reasoning of this view 
and they spared the apostles. They spared them. Though I'm like Perry, I don't see why, because he talks about these other cases and how they treated them, and the movement died out. So why, uh, why save them? Uh, somebody else? Yes, ma'am. You know, that's a point I hadn't seen that connection before. I hadn't thought about that connection before. The point that she's making there is that if we're going to take his advice, then what about premillennialism, which says Jesus failed to establish the kingdom when he was here, and that the church was put in as an emergency measure? So I think that's an interesting way to look at that, really, the... Um, way to see that, that Jesus failed in establishing the kingdom according to, according to them. The kingdom hadn't been established yet according to them. It's going to be established when Christ comes again. Not according to the Bible, but according to them. But at that instance, he would have failed in that regard, so it would not have been, if you took his advice, he would have failed. It would not have been of God, it would have been of men. I think it's an interesting point to consider. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Now, Rich making a good point there. Now, how many the church had? I've seen estimates as high as twenty and thirty thousand by this time. I don't know. Now these. Fellows do their mathematics and the gymnastics and all that kind of stuff and all of these calculations. And I'm a little dubious of that kind of thing. I don't know how many. The text doesn't tell us, but it was growing, and it was growing in an amazing way. And we are talking about thousands. And so Gamaliel should have seen that, you know, let's just wait and see. It's not going to work because this thing is, they filled Jerusalem with the doctrine. So you raise a good point there. Yes, sir. Yes, I'd say all the apostles are here. Yes, you have second person, a second person plural pronouns used. It's all of them. All of them. Yes, ma'am. Well, that is the most mixed up, complicated theory you're going to come across. Now, I have been through, in fact, I had a master's degree in philosophy and went to doctorate program in philosophy, and you can get some really complex theories and issues going, but that one takes the cake. I mean, it really is a complex issue, and they don't agree among themselves with regard to the matter. All right, somebody else. Well, that's a good point. Who else has something to help me with this? Please do. Well, you know, I guess Jim, in a way, and he's almost right in a way. It's not that he meant it that way. But on Judgment Day, he will be, if it is a man, he will be. Yeah, yeah. 
on, on, on judgment day, God will straighten it out, that's for sure. It'll be all straightened out on that day. And it reminds me of 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. God will destroy those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of Christ. He's going to straighten it out on judgment day. And that verse 6 there in that paragraph really shows it is a just thing for God to punish the wicked. That's 2 Thessalonians 1 and the verse is verse 6. All right, that's a good discussion. Thank you for helping me with this. Who else has a point or something? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, God used them to bring the people back, didn't he? The Persians, ancient Persians. I'll tell you what, um, <laughs> these Iranians today feel like, and they probably are, go back to the ancient Persians. And they caused a whole lot of trouble over there in the, in the Near East today, but God used them to bring about that restoration of his people and to restore Israel to Jerusalem. And it is a great story in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so you're exactly right. Yes, sir. Yeah, and also keep in mind verse 13, broad is the way, narrow, uh, few there be that find it, but broad is the way, and many there be that go thereat. So there's another passage. So Jesus is making the point there will be many who will reject the gospel. Don't be confounded by that fact. Jesus is saying that. And that there will be many who will not because they did not. They did not obey. And, and that's an important concept to teach people about what obedience really is. It's not just saying, I believe in Jesus. Now, that's important, but it's, that's just the beginning. It's a doing. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's another one, John chapter 14, that you might want to add to that. Well, somebody else along these lines. Thank you for helping me. Yes, sir. Right. Yeah, but they didn't. Yeah, but they did. Right. They didn't identify Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. That's right. They knew about the Christ. This is our Greek term for the anointed one. But they didn't associate Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. And so do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? We mean Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. All right. Somebody else along this line. I'm happy to. Uh, hear from you and help me understand this, but it is, but if it is of God, 39, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found frightening, fighting against God. They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So it's a great passage of Scripture. It's a faith-building passage of Scripture that talks about the great faith that these men had. And it's a very crucial point 
in the history of the church here as the church, as you pointed out, the church is really growing and the church is really um, uh, gaining in number in Jerusalem and in and around Jerusalem, and yet they can't stop it. They, they continue to go on preaching and teaching. Notice the two words there, the teaching and the preaching. Interesting words there. It comes out in English, verse 42. Um, basically, it, there are two different words there, but basically it comes out gospelizing. You can't stop them from gospelizing. They're going to continue to do it. They write on gospelizing. <laughs> They're preaching and teaching it, Jesus as the Christ. Notice the definite article modifying uh, Christos, Christ there. He is the one, and there's no salvation from any other. Now, we come to chapter 6, and we can move the uh, slide up. Thank you very much. The first deacons, that's what I call them. Now, you're going to say, well, wait a minute. Are these the first deacons or not? Well, let's see. You can, you can uh, straighten me out on that in just a moment. But I call them the first deacons, and it seems to be a pattern for selection that we have here. However, the bigger issue is unity in the body of Christ because we've got a problem in the church. Now, we've had problems in the church already, and the problem that we had was old Ananias and Sapphira. And God dealt with that problem. You'll remember that. How that they said they gave all to the, the church and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet when they really had lied to God and they had lied to the Holy Spirit about what they were giving with regard to the church. Well, we've got some more problems in the church again. And the problem in the church this time is unity. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, says disciples there, doesn't necessarily say they were baptized. Maybe they were baptized. I don't know. These particular disciples, they're learners. They're, they're learning. They're understanding. Now, to be a Christian, you've got to be baptized. And you've got to be added to the body of Christ in that fashion. Well, the disciples, maybe he's referring to Christians here. Disciples were increasing in number. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So unity is a problem. We've got a dispute going on here. Now we've got Hebrew Christians, we've got uh, Hellenistic Christians, and the line of distinction goes even deeper than that. You've got Jews who have become Christians who lived in Jerusalem, You've got Jews who have become Christians who lived out there outside of Jerusalem in the, um, in the world around that, the Greek-speaking world around that. And these Jews who lived in Jerusalem who became Christian, no doubt were speaking and using Aramaic, which is sort of a, a um, cousin to Hebrew. Aramaic now becomes the language of the day. Hebrew is still around, but it's not as popular as Aramaic is. And basically, Aramaic is the same language, except there are a few differences in, in the languages. But the point is that they speak a different language. They speak Aramaic. But, you know, these other Jews who live outside Jerusalem, you know what they speak? They speak Greek. They're speaking Greek. So you've got Greek-speaking Christians. You've got Aramaic-speaking Christians. You've got Hellenistic Jews that have become Christians. You've got Hebrew Jews that have become Christians. 
Now this Hebrew Jew thing is going to come up even more so by the time you get to Acts chapter 15 and the Gentiles coming in. Gentiles now have come in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. We're not there yet. But we had another problem. But we got a problem here even among the Jews who are Christians. And so they feel like we're being left out here. Now this helping out with the food. Now the food is not actually in the text. It is an addition by the translators. But it's clear that's what they're talking about. And that's why they put it in there for us. The daily service. I think some translate administration, that kind of thing. The necessities. The daily necessity. And they say, hey, our widows are being left out. Now, God has always been concerned about the widow. He's always been concerned about the orphan. And He's made special plans and preparations for the care and the keeping of widows and orphans. And so, if a widow comes along, her husband died, of course, she becomes a widow. She's got no means of support. If her, she has no children, she's out. She has no means of providing. And the church here is stepping up and saying, we're going to help our widows. We're going to help the widows here, Acts 2.45. Acts 4 and 35, we're going to help these people who need help. We're going to give them food. But yet there's a group in the church, and it may be a pretty sizable group by now, saying, our widow's being left out. This is not a fair uh, administration with regard, to, um, with regard to these matters. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. Now that, to me, is amazing. If you can come up with a point where the whole congregation agrees with it. Now, this right here is a way the whole congregation's agreeing with this. Well, that's amazing to me. But at any rate, the statement pleased the whole congregation. They saw the wisdom in it. And so they said, we're going to seek out, we're going to delegate this matter. Up to this time, evidently, it was up to the apostles to do this. Now, you remember they were laying these proceeds at the apostles' feet, and they were using it for the benefit of those who were in need. And here you have widows who are in need of food. You have people in need of food. And maybe the apostles have helped this, say, hey, can you help me with this? And so they get some helpers, and they're taking food to this house and to that house, and people who are in need food, they're distributing as the people need it. They're in need of it. These people are poor. But he said, now, we're being left out in this. It's not a fair, equitable distribution. So I said, I'll tell you what we do. We're going to get seven men and let them work on this. They're going to see to this matter. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to preaching and teaching the Word, and you devote yourself, see after these particular matters. So I'm sure it wasn't just the seven. The seven, no doubt, solicited help, <clears throat> but these particular men were in a position to see to the physical aspects of the church at that time. Yes, sir. Well, I don't know. Probably some have that view. I'm not sure I can say, but some have that view. And if you're, it's like the preacher said one time, if you're looking for a perfect congregation and if you go there, 
it won't be perfect anymore. And so if you uh, are trying to find the perfect congregation, then I wish you'd let me know and I'll try try to join up. (laughs) But I'm joking, of course, but the point that I'm making is we all come together with our shortcomings and our needs and our our lack of understanding and we all have to be patient and caring with each other and we all come together with different backgrounds and with different um, thoughts and concepts and a lot of baggage. We all bring a lot of baggage, but it's all... Uh, decided by what the Scripture says. This is how you handle the problem. And that's why it's so important for us to come together and study so that we can work our way through. And classes like this where you talk to me and I talk to you and we converse back and forth and we in a loving way solve and work our way through the reasoning process based on the Scripture. Yes, sir. No. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I think so. Right. I think Charlie's right there. I don't think it was a definite thing, any kind of prejudice against them. I don't get that out of the text. I think it was just that they were being uh, overlooked. And I think that's his point here in using that word, were being overlooked, not deliberately. Uh, but yet it was just not everything is getting done the way it should be getting done. The issue is such a bigger problem. We need another way to handle this. All right, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to handle the physical aspects of this? Now, the apostles devoted themselves to preaching and praying and the spiritual aspects about that, but how are we going to handle these particular physical matters? And this is a pattern that I see in... Acts chapter 16 as to how that is to be done. And here's another point. And I have to say these because they come to my mind. In another second, it'll be out of my mind. I won't remember it. But not everybody's got the same talent. Does Romans 12 say anything about that? Does 1 Corinthians 12 say anything about that? Yes, it does. Not everybody's got the same talent. Not everybody's a mouth. Not everybody's an ear. Not everybody's a hand. Not everybody's a foot. But everybody can serve in some way. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing others serve in their own way with the talent that they have. And that's why this advice was so well received. And so here are the men. You need seven men. Seven men. I don't know why I said seven. Somebody asked me a question. Ah, there you go. I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe so. I don't know. There you go. I don't know. I don't know. There you go. Yeah. Your guess is as good as mine. I don't know why seven. But at any rate, I got an idea. And then the idea is that was the number they needed to get the job done. Now, I think that's probably what's in their mind. Now, you may have a better idea on that. But sometimes people will ask me, how many elders do we need? How many deacons do we need? We need enough to get the job done. That's what we need, whatever that number is. This congregation will have two. This congregation will have four. That congregation over there got six. You need enough to get the job done. And I think that's the point of the seven here. Now, you might think, well, it's a perfect number. Maybe that's so. 
And it is so in some contexts. That is right. Um, whether that's the issue here or not, I don't know. But who was the seven who? The seven who? Who? Men. It was seven men that was to handle this. Seven men are to handle this responsibility. And it's always been that way with regard to the New Testament and the church of the Lord. The responsibility of these particular matters are given to uh, the men. Women have a very important responsibility as well. But the Scripture says seven men here. And it didn't say some men and women. It said some men. Get seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Now, we understand what reputation means. We understand full of the Spirit, be guided by, directed by the Spirit of God, Galatians chapter 5, and of wisdom, being able to use that knowledge properly and apply it the way it needs to be applied, that we can put in charge of this task. So I know the word deacon itself is not in this chapter. But the word that we get deacon from is in this chapter, and it comes to us in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's our word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, Nacanar, Timon, and Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, that's interesting to me, and I don't have time to discuss it. They've rung the bells on me. But in, that, in the way that they chose these men, and who did they choose? They chose Greeks. They chose Greek-speaking Jews to handle this. Now, if you consider the problem, where did the problem come from? The problem came originally from the Greek-speaking widows. Our widows are not getting the uh, administration that they need, so what did they do? They chose Greek-speaking men to handle that problem, and it was solved. I think there's a lot that needs to be learned, and we don't have time to do it today. We'll try to do it on another occasion, but on how to handle problems. We got a church problem here. How are we going to handle this church problem? And look at the wisdom that was used in handling church problems. The handling and the management of a group. The group dynamic. How to handle the problem. And how to discuss and resolve the problem. There's a lot can be learned here from that perspective as well. But we'll have to wait till next time. All right, I've enjoyed it. I hope it's been helpful to you. We'll be back at Acts chapter 6, and I'll be looking, and we're going to take special note. In fact, we ought to take special note of each of these individuals mentioned in verse 5, but Stephen's going to come up. Yes, sir. Gamaliel. Well, you probably, you may be right on that. You may be right on that. He may be lumping Christ into the crowd that was killed. That may be right. Uh, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Somebody else? All right. We'll bring it to an end and then uh, begin our worship in a moment.